The Why I'll Never Make It podcast presents the Spotlight Series, an in-depth look at those making a difference in the arts and beyond. Welcome, and thank you for joining me on the first installment of the Spotlight Series. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. We begin with a two-part look at the wonderful nonprofit organization Only Make Believe, which brings interactive theater into the hospitals and care facilities for children. Part one is an interview with Dina Hammerstein, president of James Hammerstein Productions and the founder of Only Make Believe, or OMB for short. I first met Dina Hammerstein eight years ago as a volunteer for OMB. Since then, I've gotten to know her as the very spirit and soul of the organization. The story of her life is filled with moments and events that would eventually lead her to volunteer work, and especially work for children. Growing up in England, she was exposed to theater at a young age, but in her 20s, she made her mark as an actress on TV and film in London. It was during this part of her career she came to America for the first time and through a mutual friend met James Hammerstein, son of the legendary lyricist Oscar Hammerstein. But such theater royalty didn't faze Dina. She and James married and were together almost 30 years. During that time she continued to perform some, but also began writing stories and plays. James passed away in 1999, and that same year she also founded only make-believe. In addition to heading up OMB, she continues to produce theater both on Broadway and on the West End. Dina certainly shows no sign of slowing down anytime soon. Well, here I am in the home of Dina Hammerstein, and thank you so much for inviting me and uh, letting me into your home. My pleasure. <laughs> You've been a, a producer for, uh, for many years now, and what was it that first introduced you to theater, to performing? Many moons ago, I started off as an actress in England. I actually only fell into producing when my husband died and I took over his production company. Before that, I'd been, an, as I say, an actress in England and a published writer. I hadn't considered producing, but circumstances change. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the first thing that introduced you to, to theatre as a, as a child or growing up? I was taken to the theatre at the time. I had a broken collarbone, so I had one arm hanging loose, oh, wow. and the other one was strapped. Um, the show seemed to be like pink and colour and all the things that life hadn't actually been. So I remember standing backstage, I think I was about seven or eight, and the actress came out and said, oh, the little girl with one arm. And so I limped towards her as well, and I knew then that this was where I wanted to be. <laughs> An actress was born. <laughs> Not only with a broken arm, but you also had to have a limp, so voila. <laughs> so that was the beginning, and how I became a professional actress in England, and I'm sure it's not necessarily true now, because, gosh, we're talking a long time ago, 
but you before you got your full equity card, you were like a learner's permit as a driver license. Oh, okay. And you had to do a certain amount of work before you could be a full member of equity. It actually is very similar now. They have an equity membership candidate program. And so you earn enough weeks during that program, and then you can become a full-fledged member after well, it, so many it, weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's similar. And so one got one's equity card by actually doing school tours. A, a company of like four of us in a van would travel around the country going to a different school in the morning and the afternoon and doing an adaptation of a fairy tale or something oh, okay. for them. And in many ways, when you think about how my life's come full circle, mm-hmm. a lot what I learned in those early days is actually you know been translated into only make believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What was the first experience for you, either on stage or your first acting bit? First television I ever did was a comedy half hour, at the time with an English comedian who was extremely successful. And I think I was about, like, 17. And how did you... Did you have to audition for that, or...? I can't remember, to be honest. But I do remember that young woman who was the production assistant is still my friend all these many, many years later. Hmm. So you can form extremely long-lasting friendships in Absolutely. theatre. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's like for being in the theatre or being in performing. You get these close relationships with people, and they tend to last. I know people that I've been in shows with you know, decades ago I'm still friends with today. Yeah. yeah. Most of your acting experience was in front of the camera, is that...? I did a bit of stage, but mainly TV and movies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how did you transition from... You know, as you said, you were doing the, the school productions, and then how did that blossom into more TV film stuff? Well, it was at the time in England where there was change in the air in terms of the kind of shows that were being done on television. And instead of going for sort of costume dramas or middle-class comedy kind of things, it suddenly became, you know cinema verite and the more kind of street cred that you had the more useful you were and so I started my television career with people like Ken Loach and Ken Russell and Jonathan Miller all the really talented people mm-hmm. yeah so I, I guess I was very fortunate and what did you enjoy what did you find different about being in front of the camera as opposed to being on stage you can be extremely intimate with the camera And if you trust the camera and the camera trusts you, it can be quite um, honest in Mm -hmm. a weird way. You expose quite a bit of yourself. On stage, I think you need more discipline to reach out to the audience. And it's more controlled, I think. I felt looser on TV and film to scream and shout and do whatever. To a certain extent, did you enjoy that more? Did you feel like you were able to to do more of what you wanted to do on screen? I think I got some more satisfying parts out of it Mm. in terms of uh, primal scream kind of work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, I was was doing a little digging, and you can tell me if this is true. Your very first on-screen, I guess, credit was in A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles movie. Is that... Is that correct? No, actually, I was in movies before then, but yeah, I was at that 
was a movie I was in. How did you... That I auditioned for. Okay, okay. It didn't seem such a big deal at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a big deal to everyone else. But you know what it's like when you're working with something. You just go to work. You don't think of it in those terms. Right. Yeah, I mean, because obviously the Beatles were big at that time. Because this was 1964, I believe. But to you, this was just another acting job. Just another gig, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, but as you said, you had been doing on-screen stuff before then and then after then. What, what would you say is some of your favorite parts or, or favorite moment that you remember? I would say that the most effective work was the early work with Ken Loach, like up the junction where I had an abortion on TV and it changed the rules, oh, laws wow. in England. So it had a real kind of social effect. Mm-hmm. So one did work like that that had more of a political influence. Mm-hmm. And so did you find that a lot of the work that you were doing at that time was geared more toward having a message and, and making a point? Seemed to be. They, they didn't, I didn't get cast in the frothy stuff, is that what I'm going to say? <laughs> yeah, you like the more gritty. <laughs> well, it seemed to be, and it's like I was also in the original Foresight saga, and I remember going on the set at the BBC and all these lavish sets and then there's a tiny grubby little kitchen. Oh, that's where I am. <laughs> that's my part right. in there. <laughs> yeah. From the beginning, did you always kind of gravitate more towards the, the heavier roles or the meatier roles as opposed to the ones that were light? And I comedic? think it was how you were cast, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. What was it that, that finally brought you to America? Was it doing a film or how did that... No, it was... Um, totally social. I was in London and I was introduced to a guy whose name was Michael Bennett, who turned out to be the extremely successful Michael Bennett of Chorus Line, etc., etc. Michael was in London to choreograph Promises, Promises, and we were introduced by a mutual friend, and I was probably with words like Michael was with his feet. So it was a kind of, he immediately found me good company, let's put it like that. And he kept coming back to London because of the production. And then at one point, I'd never been to New York. And he said, come on and come and stay with me. And so I did. And how was that experience coming to New York for the first time? Mind-blowing, yeah. Totally mind-blowing. Uh, I can still remember it quite vividly. It was also the time that I, Mike in, Michael introduced to me to the man I married, Jamie Hammerstein. Well, I can say it was a pretty memorable holiday. I, and I feel as though I came to New York in January 1970 and I've been on holiday ever since. <laughs> and, and so how long did you stay in New York for that first visit? I think it was like three weeks. Okay, so a nice lengthy time. Yes, and Michael at that time was much more successful here than, you know, we knew of him in London. So he gave you a very giddy sense of New York and Broadway. He'd take you backstage to see one number and then nick through the alleyway to see the closing number of something else. And So you really bounced around the theatre scene. And also, as I was staying with him, he was working on a show called Company. Hmm. So every morning the doorbell would ring and in would come Steve Sondheim, Hal Prince, Bobby Avian... Blah, blah, blah. So that was my 
first trip to New York, and as you can imagine. And for you, these were just people you were meeting in a trip to New York. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't this. Obviously, hearing those names now is yes. But I wasn't in musical theater, right? You know. And so you. And so as you said, you never did musical theater yourself. Well, you can tell from my voice <laughs> about the only song I could sing is "Old Man River." <laughs> <laughs> you you then went back to London, and so what eventually? brought you to America on a more permanent holiday, as you say? Uh, well, the relationship with Jamie started, and he kept coming back to London, or me coming back here, and a couple of years later, we were married. So, in meeting Jamie Hammerstein, you said you didn't really know that family or know the, uh, the, the big name that it was. I'd How... never seen a show. Right, right. You'd never seen a Roger no. Hammerstein show. No. So... When did you realize, I guess, the kind of musical theater royalty that you were becoming a part of? I don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> it was all so foreign. America was foreign. Musical theater was foreign. Um, family was foreign, you know? So strange. I think a lot of the reason that Jamie was attracted to me, to be perfectly honest, was because I had my own circle of friends and my own identity. And I think that he had been so used to people always asking him about his father and blah, blah, blah. And the mere fact that I, I didn't know it or didn't seem to have that much interest, he found unbelievably refreshing because I didn't want to audition for one of the shows. I hadn't been brought up on it. You know, it was a completely different... And I think that he kind of liked the fact that I was there for Jamie, not for the cachet of being a Hammerstein. Right, not for the name. Yeah. yeah. You were there to really get to know him. Yeah. I would imagine that that was throughout your whole relationship. It was it was about the two of you and not so much the peripheral. Absolutely. Whenever you eventually married, then obviously you moved to America. Or was there talk of him moving to London? No, we, we used to, in the early days, have a home there. His mother had an apartment there, a really beautiful apartment. As time passed and she didn't want to sort of travel so much and cut down on homes, etc., uh, she gave us the apartment, which we then bought a sort of family home in Fulham. And our son was born there, and he went to school there, and so we spent a lot of time there as well as here. I don't know if many people feel this when they have come from one place and go to another, but it took me a long time to be in the place I was without missing the place I wasn't, you know. That was really the hardest hurdle. I'm not in London now, but I'm fine in New York, rather mm -hmm. than, oh, I wish I was here, there. Was that part of the reason why you would go back and forth between London and New York when you were first married? or? Yeah, I definitely need to go back and check in and still feel rooted there. When did America, I guess, become more of your, your, your main residence? Or, or has it at this point? Well, when I became more American to myself is when... Basically, after I started volunteering, and then you realize when you're working in hospitals, or I volunteered at GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, in the Kid Child Life Program, but when you see the effect of sort of local politics, what it has on people who need help, etc., etc., 
then you feel, oh, I should have a vote. And what first introduced you to that type of volunteering? Well, one of the my first real friends in America was an actor who I met at the O'Neill. You know the O'Neill Center? Mm -hmm. Well, we went there for many years. Jamie was one of the original directors there, and I ha did a couple of seasons there as part of the company. And Robert Christian became a really, really close friend. He died in January of 1982 of AIDS. Mm which wasn't even a word that was being used. Yeah, then. people didn't really know what it was at that point. No. Um, hard not to get political after something like that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. One was losing a great deal, not only of friends, but in immensely talented people. So you had been an actress and a writer, and with your husband being a director, did you ever think of going in that direction? Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no way do I have the patience to be a director. <laughs> did he produce both shows in London as well as New oh, York? A lot of the productions from here went there, and yes. Oh, okay, so yeah. he would bring them from New York into London yeah, or vice versa. Yeah, and we'd travel to Australia for production, yeah. He, he also was producing, but mostly directing at that time? Mostly, he fell into directing a bit later on in his life, and first of all, sort of, you know, he did a lot of his dad's musicals all around the world and stuff. When he was producing, he produced a lot at EST, Ensemble mm. Studio Theatre, then was brought on board to produce I Love You, You're Perfect Now, Change, mm. the Joe Pietro show, which one had no sense that 12 years later it would still be running. Yeah, it was a long-running show. It was a hugely long-running show, and Jamie died while it was on, so it, that's how the producing, I just sort of fell into his shoes for that. So once, once he passed, then you kind of took his place and... Well, he, he had a production company, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so his production company. Yeah. So what was the transition then from, from being an actress into a more producer-type role? No, I acted for a bit over here. I was on Broadway in our Simon Gray's play Butley with Alan Bates and worked at places like Manhattan Theatre Club, etc., but basically, as you can tell, after all these years, I'm incapable of doing an American accent, so... <laughs> you, you are who you are. I don't know why, but it just seems to escape me. When the acting work wasn't as uh, fulsome as one would like, mm -hmm. I started to write, which you can do anywhere. Yeah. And what types of things did you, did you first write? Plays. Um, a couple of plays over here, one called Broken English, which Samuel French published. And, uh, what was Broken English about? Oh, that's almost a kind of personal story. I had kind of an unusual upbringing, and so I wrote that story. But it's interesting, when you write something, it, you, you don't find you self only being able to write from your autobiographical point of view. Other voices have very strong points of view too, and they'll let you know it. <laughs> yes, yes, I bet. Yeah. 
did you tend to collaborate in, in your writing, or was it more personal In the personal beginning, endeavor? yeah, I used to collaborate with a Cuban writer called Eduardo de Machado. Do you know his work? I've heard the name. And Jamie had produced plays of his, and we got together and wrote quite a bit. And that was a fun time. Yeah. Was he, was he almost like a, I guess, a mentor of sorts to you, kind of getting you he, into the writing? Well, he was very free. He, yeah, I think the thing about my writing is that one's so influenced when you live in England by a standard of what you think language should sound like and proper. Um, and you're kind of inhibited by the sort of Oxford and Cambridge sort of intellects mm. in terms of finding your own voice. Eduardo allowed, I guess, for me to let my own voice out rather than try to write in the style of anyone else. As you progressed as, as a writer, you, you'd kind of left the acting behind? I would have said the acting left me behind. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, the parts, I would still go back to England and do the odd telly or something like that, but it was hardly what you would call a avalanche of offers. And also, Jamie wasn't really, wouldn't have been as content if I was travelling off to do six months in Seattle and three months in this, that and the other. And work in America does mean a lot of that. Whereas in London, you can do film, stage, TV, all in the same city. Since you bring up London, what would you say is the difference living there and what you found living in New York? I would say that the friends that I have in London have been my friends for the last hundred years. <laughs> Uh, that there's a constancy about it that doesn't really need any kind of catch-up, that you're immediately in the now with them. And it's a different way of socialising. In London, the social life is you go to a friend's house and you hang out and see who comes over. It's far less kind of programmed and therefore, in a way, more spontaneous. But obviously you found a home and, a, and uh, an enjoyable life here in New York. So from the writing, how did that blossom into production? Was that through uh, Jamie's production company and then his passing when you took over? Becoming a producer, yes. And the writing now is all to do with only make-believe. Mm -hmm. And the producing, really, when you say producer, one feels a bit of a fraud because it's not something one actually chose or one would say one has any expertise in. It's just a question now and then you care for a show and you want to see it on the stage. That type of attitude or the way you look at theatre, has that informed the types of shows that you, that you do go after? I think I'm more interested now when I think about it. I'm more interested in a new play, I would think, than anything else. You have produced only one Rajasthan Hammerstein show. Allegro. Allegro. Yeah. yeah. That was in D.C. Okay. Where it won the Helen Hayes Award. Actually, oh, oh, it very did. Nice. Yeah, Joe did the rewrites of the book. Joe from uh, from I, I Love, Love you. you, perfect. Yeah, yeah. You spoke about the school plays whenever you were younger, and then volunteering that you had done. What eventually led to the creation of Only Make Believe itself? When I was a volunteer, there was a program I funded to take the children to the theatre and. On a Wednesday matinee, midtown, 
with a busload of sort of um, heavily challenged wheelchair kids. It's an incredibly overwhelming sensory experience just for anyone. Although they loved the experience, one used to feel, you know, it was exhausting. So basically, Only Make Believe came from, well, why not bring the theatre to them? When my husband died, that's what I decided to do. And Was his passing an impetus for absolutely, doing it? Very fiercely so, because I've grown very attached to a lot of the kids that one had worked with in the institutions or hospitals one volunteered, and... I was pretty devastated when Jamie died and didn't want those children not to get the affection and love and fun one had brought to them. So Only Make Believe was created to bring a group of actors to give them an hour of entertainment, participation, release. What were the, the challenges in getting such an operation underway? One was fortunate because one had been in a hospital environment and because one knew the staff in the hospital and they'd known you over years of... It was easy for me to say, would it be OK if I tried this out? A bit like a pilot programme. OK. And I really had no idea actually what the structure was then I just knew the sense that of bringing the plays to them from the early experiences of the school plays etc it was really obvious that kids love to participate and if they're having a good time and want to believe you're a fairy princess even though you're a sullen whatever they will and so I knew that kind of interaction with children in America, they're not used to participating in theatre. It's just a, you experience it's something it. something you watch. And, yeah. Yes. So the idea of bringing that sense of English pantomime was the idea. And, and in the beginning, it was more improvisational. And then you realise, no, you need a beginning, middle and end. Right. Yes, you need an intuition so everybody can sort of have a release. Mm-hmm. And... So basically, the kids teach you, really, what works best for them. So in, so in that first year, it was really just an experiment, and yeah. you were kind of trying yeah. things out. Yeah. Work. Did you yourself perform at no. all? No. Yeah. No. You, you brought in other actors to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. And where, where did these actors come from? Were they people that you know, or did you audition well, new people? Yes, auditioned, and basically the first group of actors we probably worked with were ones that had actually experience in educational theatre. And it was before September the 11th, 2001. Right, because this is 1999 when this was started. Yeah, end of 99, beginning of 2000. Right. And at that time, your access into these places was a lot less complicated than it is now. You know, when I said I'd come to volunteer, uh, you know, nobody did a background check or I went through any compliance or this, that or the other. Obviously, that's changed radically. So whether it would be possible to start a pilot programme without really knowing where it's going anymore, but I was fortunate enough to be able to experiment and come up with 
what we feel is working in terms of how we present the theatre to the kids for and with them. And at what point did you see Only Make Believe as actually, now it's something that's really moving forward and and becoming a, a mainstay in these hospitals? In the way that it was a pilot program, one didn't actually follow it through. In you now, like now, as an actor, if you're doing a TV series, they sign you for eight years. Mm. But I didn't realize when I started OMB, <laughs> oh yeah, eight years, you know, eighteen years. You realize it's working, and then you want to reach more and more kids, and then other people sort of sign up because they believe in the mission of it, and so it's grown quite organically. Your connections with actors and other people in the performing arts, did that help OMB grow through the years? Absolutely. I think that the endorsement of so many sort of successful actors, stars, whatever you want to name them, has been incredibly helpful. And I would think most charities depend a lot on the celebrity that they can bring to it, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, because the people associated with Only Make Believe Now, Ian McKellen, Jude Law, these are huge stars. And are they are they people that you've asked to bring on, or did they find out and want to be a part? Well, I mean, I've known Jude since he's 19. I've known Ian over 40 years. It's not like they're not in the know of what you're doing or trying. Right. So in that way, it's not been a hard ask. Mm-hmm. Would I, you know, if I have any... Uh, questions that need a lot of thought, I'd certainly ask Ian, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I value their input a lot. Has it grown in ways that you didn't anticipate? It's grown very satisfyingly when I sit here and think about the little faces that I can see, you know, dressed up and having fun. And We did an event in D.C. a couple of weeks ago for a sunshine camp for cancer children, children going through chemo or in recovery, a hundred of them, Hmm. and just to see them having fun is humbling and incredibly gratifying. Absolutely. Yeah, I was, I've been a volunteer for Only Make Believe myself. I started back in 2010, and I have had a chance to to see what the actors are doing, who are so passionate and involved with it, but then to see the children's reaction and how energized they get. Uh, and it is, it is quite uh, inspiring to see that, to see these and children. The, the act, our actors are wonderful with the children. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I also learned many, many years ago in, on the school tour, one of the schools we went to was a special needs kind of school, something that... I hadn't experienced before as an actor and gosh they were responsive to the show but when we were leaving they didn't want us to go and kept asking when we would be back and that stuck with me so much and that's why I only make believe we go back for six weeks in a row so mm-hmm. those children could ask and they're always going to we'll see you next week it seemed very important for me that these children it wasn't just a one-off right And it's also important for us that the actors are the same team so that the kids know it's the same three actors coming in for the six weeks. So they they get to know the same faces. Yeah. Yeah. So it started in just one hospital or did you have... At the Rusk. Okay, at the Rusk. And what what is the the Rusk's main thrust of work? 
Rusk is a rehab for children who've been through very critical surgery, a lot of mental and physical disabilities. And the children are there usually for quite a lengthy stay. When I'd volunteered there, I'd obviously got to know children. And I realised, you know, some of them most probably are parents now, you know. Mm. You don't think of that. I still see them as three or four or something. <laughs> Who knows? So basically, that was a long-term care unit. So you knew you were going to be with the same children for the six-week cycle. Since then, obviously, we've gone to a number of hospitals or special schools for autism, and I didn't anticipate in the beginning, but we have a very talented actors who could adapt to whatever the audience is, and we've learned to adapt shows for low-functioning, much better-functioning. And, for instance, the autism schools, they like the same play for the six <laughs> weeks. They want to get familiar with that. And now, years later, we can do two plays in the six weeks, but no way could you give them six. Right. So you adjust to that. In writing the shows, did you first start writing some of them, or did you have other people collaborate and I create the shows? I think I started writing them when I realized that we needed a beginning, middle, and end. Instead of just improving the whole thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, and I also didn't want it to be... I didn't want it to have to do with their issues. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be an escape from those kind of issues. So I wanted to bring in silliness and verse and all the things that I hope is fun for them. Working on a new script, it'll come out and then they'll rehearse it and then we'll adjust it as we see how the audience... That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. you see how the audience reacts yeah. to it and then you can adjust accordingly. Yeah. Uh, what I've realised, and I think it's a useful lesson probably for anyone in the theatrical profession, is nothing's ever perfect. You just do the best you can. And I can pace the corridors outside a hospital as they're doing Only Make Believe, and I'm upset if they get one of my lines wrong. And it's <laughs> like, it could be just the same as if I was pacing up and down outside the National. So, basically... It teaches you quite a bit about submitting to the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the, the, the moment. Yeah. yeah because you yeah. never know what's going to happen yeah. in the moment. You know, and in our situation, you, you know, somebody has to come in and deal with the changing the tubes maybe on a kid. Mm -hmm. or How does the, the, the medical circumstances affect, affect the performance or, or, or affect the, the types of places that you'll go into? Well, there are a couple of, you know, when the kids are in an IC unit or they're um, isolated from other children, and then there's a kind of studio thing where we do a, in front of a green screen, we'll do one of our shows with phone-ins for all of the kids to be able to respond to it that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So so the actors will be in one central room, yeah. and then the kids yeah. can watch... Yeah, and they'll ask questions, and, you know, and the kids can... I have not seen one of those shows. Yeah, it's yeah. mostly been shows where the yeah, kids are yeah, there and present. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's very interesting. How 
has it been different producing shows for Broadway, off-Broadway, and now producing this? Obviously, the, the, the worlds are different, but what, what, what is similar and what is different in, in producing those types of productions? Well, what's different is you're not doing only make-believe to make money. You're just doing it to make kids feel happy. So there's no expectations of anyone being let down by it not achieving this, that, or the other. Because the hospitals and the care facilities, they don't pay for no, you to come in no, at all. No, and we pay our actors mm -hmm. so that we have the best quality and they have the commitment and, and respect that they deserve. The actors themselves are certainly... I've, I've met several of them throughout the years, and they definitely have a passion for this cause as well for the organization yeah. itself yeah and it's something that they thoroughly enjoy doing I think everybody feels a connection to it who's involved with it I think one of the uh, and one didn't expect this but it's a very hands-on organization as you know from mm -hmm. your involvement with it the volunteers are get to meet the kids get to know why they're making the costumes etc or or the crowns for the kids. So everybody, it's not something over there, it's right here. And you can be a buddy and sit with kids and get to know them, but in that way, the effect of your gratitude for, as you leave the hospital and walk out on the street, aren't you grateful every time you do that? Mm -hmm. You know, so Absolutely. It's, and, well. and, and you had mentioned the, a couple of the volunteering opportunities. One is uh, to create the costumes, yeah. to make those costumes. Yeah. And then another is to be a buddy. Explain yeah. more about being a buddy. The buddy is someone who will, for the six-week cycle, come to the same site and not only be a support for the actors, but if there's a particular child that would need more attention, that, that they can sit with that child and get the child to be comforted. Mm. And so it's a way to help the child be more interactive yeah. with the program. Yeah. Especially if it's a new kid on the ward, you know, and everybody else seems to know each other, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And the volunteers are really the lifeblood of, of the organization. Yes. And, and it's not just individuals coming in. Like myself, I was just an individual who wanted to be a part of something, and so, and so I started volunteering. But you have corporations and businesses also. And I believe that that's one of the things that, like, the Costume Collective yes. will bring in businesses that want to help out for a day or so. Yes. A lot of uh, corporations over here, I, I don't know if it's required, but they do involve themselves with volunteer work. So there's a number of corporations that will take our actors and will take all the materials, and then the corporate staff will, in their lunch hour, come and be part of a mm. costume collective, as we call it. Right. And they seem to get a, a great deal of fun out of doing arts and crafts themselves, right, actually, right. having been in an office environment all day. So it's a win-win. Yeah, because they're pushing papers, working yeah, on numbers, yeah. and then they get to make a kid's yeah, crown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With that type of volunteering uh, comes also fundraising. How have you balanced the creative and the inspirational side of, of what you do with the kids with the need to raise funds? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's always a challenge. And we've been very lucky in as much as that our gala has been successful every year. 
and that's had corporate as well as individual support that has pretty well sort of sustains the yearly budget. It would be lovely to find other avenues of constant support, but Americans seem to be very generous individually. I, I wouldn't say I've, we've had too much luck in sort of state grants or government support. So it's mostly individuals and businesses. Yeah, yeah. You'd mentioned the gala. The gala is something that happens once a year. Yeah. And, right. and when, when was the first gala? The first gala, funnily enough, wasn't the first year we started. It was actually 2001. Hmm. And we've always picked the first Monday in November. And obviously it was so soon after September the 11th. One didn't know whether to go ahead with it or not. It yeah. was really... I don't know if you were in New York. but I it, wasn't at the time. Yeah, well... So, but then we did, and Ian hosted, Ian McKellen hosted, and it was at the West Side Theatre where Joe's I Love You was playing. So in that way, we had what was needed in terms of a gala. I don't think we gave out awards. I don't think we had a corporate or anything like that. I think it was just a show, a fun show, actually. Mm Um just to announce who we were and what we were doing. And I imagine being being at that time, so close after 9-11, that it kind of took on another another purpose or had well, a little more meaning to it. Yes, and I was grateful that after t- September the 11th that I already had access to hospitals so I could... So to go there to do something positive was a really... I think that's when I finally became a New Yorker in my mm-hmm. mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't in the city at the time, but I was actually in, in Japan, so when I came back to the States, that's when I, it really hit me what had happened while I was gone. Yeah. And looking at the pictures, and even though I wasn't in New York, it, it affected the country as a whole. Uh, and so I can only imagine being here in the city, what it was like in the months after 9-11. So I can still remember going into sort of Bellevue or this, that and the other and seeing all those photographs of all the missing people. Um, Yeah. And did that affect or change or did you have to alter anything with Only Make Believe and the type of program you did? In a weird way, I think that it actually made the hospital staff more appreciative they were just relieved to hear laughter, I think. And so I felt in a way that it brought the staff in to appreciate Only Make Believe, you know. But I did feel that it meant something more to them after that, yes. Yeah, because by, by then it had been going on about a year and a half, two yeah, years. Yeah. And so it had started so it to was, establish Yeah, itself. and it, I felt we were really welcomed, yeah. And then with each successive gala... Has it seems to have become a little bit more uh, solidified. Well, in, it's gone its from operation. off Broadway to Broadway. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What have you enjoyed about seeing that that growth over the years in the galas, the presentation, the the, the different hosts that you've had and performers? It's always nerve wracking. I feel as though I've been doing a wedding every year for the last <laughs> extra without any presents. Hello, mm, does right. this seem right to you? <laughs> um, 
they're fun. They're really good fun. And like the idea of doing a gala that isn't also like a auction and a chicken dinner and rub, you know, it's it's a show. It's basically what OMB is about. It's just to give you fun and a variety and hopefully cheer you up. Mm-hmm. And one of the pivotal moments in every gala is whenever you bring out some of the children that you've had a chance to get to know in in the hospitals and those are always wonderful times for the audience to get to see what what their their contributions are actually doing for the children well it's a difficult one because you don't want to sort of exploit the kid it's a very um sensitive how do you handle this and we obviously show video too, but there's no doubt that the impact of seeing one of the children who've experienced OMB is very effective. But we, you have to be careful to pick a child that you think will enjoy it rather than be intimidated. Exactly, yeah, because yeah. they, they get to come on stage yeah, yeah. and speak in front of everyone yeah. and talk about their yeah. experience with OMB, yeah. believe. Yeah. Throughout Only Make Believe, you still continue to produce uh, on, on Broadway and, and other shows. Uh, how have you balanced doing both at this point? Well, there are some times when the main thrust of one's time is involved with a production, and it seems important to me now at this stage in my life that I want to make sure that OMB is in the right place. You know, it's we're going to be 20 years old next year, right. and I feel that's a real milestone. Um, and I wouldn't mind making sure it's in really safe hands in not only the people that run it, but also the financially safe hands. So maybe I could think about going to London and starting it there. Ah, yes, because you've you've started an office in, in, DC. in DC. Yeah. Yeah, how how was that process? That's really there? really going well and they've had great success and they're not necessarily difficult, but one didn't know it was going to be as successful as it is as it is. One of our board members moved out there and one of our actors moved there because her husband was relocated. And they formed this incredible team and got a team around them, and they now have their own advisory board, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's still absolutely the essence and mission of OMB. Hmm. So one can see that it can flourish. Right. And it might be a nice thing for my old age to start it in London, you know? <laughs> yeah. But one would obviously have to research in... London, what would be the best hospitals where they would appreciate us most, find the actors, find it all, start from scratch. Yeah, starting from scratch again. The only difference is not completely from scratch because, as you pointed out, the sort of, the Ians and Jutes are English, so it's like... <laughs> it does help, that does help. Sure, though, if you notice, we mainly honour the English, so it seems only right we go start it there, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And what has been, in your experience, uh, producing in London and producing in New York, what have been the, the differences there? Well, the main difference is the economics, obviously. It's, mm-hmm. You can produce a play in London for approximately a third of the cost that you can do it in New York, which therefore means taking a risk in New York 
is a less likely proposition. It's much more costly to yeah. take a risk. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, what do you see in the future? What do you hope for in the next, say, five years? What would you like OMB to continue to grow and become? I'd like it to continue on its path, growing at a pace that it can afford to grow at without getting too big for its boots, but always so that it could sustain. I would like to see the vitality and commitment and excitement so that it always remains new. The thing about OMB that's also... It's changing all the time, you know... You adapt this and you do... So it's it doesn't get boring in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think for everybody who's working there, that's a vital thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And in conclusion, as we kind of wrap up, what has been the best advice, whether it's professional, personal, that has led you in your life? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. We all do. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to. But if you believe in what you're doing, just carry forth. Mm. And how would you say that that has best been implemented in your own life? Well, by giving back. Yeah. The thing I'm grateful for is that I did start volunteering and didn't be... My life wasn't just about me and mine and a very small bubble. I'm glad I've been exposed to more of the world. Thank you for joining me in my interview with Dina Hammerstein, actress, writer, producer, and founder of Only Make Believe. Join me in a couple of weeks for part two of our Focus on Only Make Believe, where I interview the artistic director, Jackie Miller, as well as two actors with the company, Jeanette Bonner and Dan Dominguez. They'll talk with me about the day-to-day working operations of Only Make Believe and what it's really like to work with these very special children. Thank you again for joining me on this very first episode of the Spotlight series. And if you enjoyed it, if, if you know anyone else who would benefit and enjoy it as well, please share it with them. Until next time, I'm Patrick Oliver Jones, and this is the Spotlight series, a presentation of the While Never Make It podcast. Take care. <laughs>